Tonight we once again on our concern show. Tonight we salute culture in all its ramifications and various forms. Exactly what uh, what Christmas in this uh, 1971-72 year is like. I think that 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 kind of epitomizes. You know, that's what's uh, where it's all going. What was it? Wasn't that Caligula that got a horse appointed to to, uh, to the Senate, or was it just a congressman? Was he in the House of Representatives, or was it Senate? Oh, a full senator, the Senate from Ionia. Very good. Uh, by the way, speaking of politics, we have a note here. A lemon tree sent as a Christmas present to President Nixon. You know, presidents get all kinds of wild stuff in the mail as gifts from the heads of state. By the Maltese premier, Dom Mintoff, was held up at London's Heathrow Airport today by U.S. import ban on rooted trees. They couldn't get it in, the lemon tree. So all they did was pull it out by the roots and shake the dirt off. Yes. Now we only deal with the last part of the horse. You don't use the whole horse. Oh, da, 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 dee. Well, we got a lot of uh, bad things for here tonight, and I thought that since this is a kind of an in-between time, uh, did you uh, hear about the lady out in uh, out along Van Wick Expressway there? There was this lady, Mrs. Delca Barlow. Did you hear about her? Out in the backyard, the hole that suddenly appeared in South Ozone Park. You heard about that, didn't you? 
Well, all of a sudden, in the ground, she uh, one moment she had a level yard with an azalea bush on it. The next minute, the bush was ten feet underground. But suddenly, a ten-foot hole, ten-foot-deep hole appeared in the yard, and it was very, you know, they were very nervous. It was a big hole. They were just right there. And uh, Mrs. Uh, Barlow, when questioned, said, "Well, it's the thing that bothered us is how it got there." And we had to just cover it up. I'm worried. I like things level. Well, that's true, Mrs. Barlow. Uh, the, the, the mysteries that one is confronted with constantly in one's life, uh, one does not know how to handle it. Uh, it's, in fact, we'd like to salute a gentleman here. You, give, give me something to clear the air. A little saluting here. Got a like to salute an old coot out there who's made it. like to salute a barber in uh, Paris. French justice has sided with an over-amorous 76-year-old barber against France's most authoritative legal publication. For all of you legal types out there who are interested in uh, keeping up with the literature, the barber, referred to in court as Monsieur F., demanded 5,000 francs damages from a state law court's gazette because it named him by name as the husband in a rather interesting divorce case. His wife won the divorce on the grounds. I don't know whether I should say this out loud here, but I'll lie, it's news. I'll make the news, right? Want to hear what's happening in the world? She won the divorce on the grounds that she could not possibly appease the septuagenarian barber's sexual appetite. Just impossible. He was a total goat. And she became sick trying. And so he... <laughs> they put it in the paper... And it says it was a bizarre case. And uh, he said his his name should have been published only his initials. He was awarded only one franc, however, damages, because he failed to convince the court that publication of his name harmed his business. In fact, his shop has been crammed with customers ever since the article appeared. He's the biggest barber in Paris today. <laughs> All kinds of ladies suddenly want to get their hair clipped there. All right, thank you, Herb. Thank you. We've got some business here. We've got to clear away there. You like that, Barbara? Hey, wouldn't that make a fantastic... Uh, Wonderful movie. I, I can see the late Fernandel playing that. Can't you, the barber? And, uh, <laughs> or, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, let's see. We've got a couple of spots here, among others. Uh, we've got a bird spot here tonight. How's your bird doing? And uh, they're, they're doing pretty good. Yeah, let, me, let me do this again. A lot of people have been calling up and saying, please, to... you're hearing me winding up my bird. Listen to that. Isn't that exciting? That's my bird. It's now wound up, or at least partially wound up. Now, when you're when you're about to launch your bird, friends, uh, for those of you who have received your bird, I, I, uh, I've gotten a lot of curious letters from people who don't read the uh, instructions. Your bird is to be launched into the wind. 
That means you don't sit it down on the ground and expect the thing to take off off the ground. Really, people do. You know, they're dumb. I just, you know, let's face it, the world is full of dildocks. And Aki keeps writing, oh, I got a birdie, don't go up in the air. I put him on the ground, nothing happened. Well, all right, Aki, get a friend of yours to read the, the instructions for you. And uh, you'd be surprised to find that you're doing it wrong. Listen, listen to how it sounds now. Should I turn my bird on here? That was uh, my bird, and uh, for those of you who would like one of these groovy little plastic birds that really fly, it's 16 inches across, it's beautiful, it really is pretty, and uh, you let this, I'll tell you what, you go into your PTA some night, you hide this in your valise, all wound up, you let this thing go, and you're going to see a lot, so many people running and hollering and hiding under chairs and screaming, especially if you paint your bird up to look like an owl, they'll love that. Or if you paint them to look like a bat, they'll, then they'll really go out of their bird. But uh, these birds are great, and they'll fly up to 600 feet. Listen, I'm winding them up again. And I'm going. <laughs> and uh, they go maybe 30, 40, 50 feet in the air, and uh, they are guaranteed to fly, and they're a lot of fun. Everybody I've ever seen, everybody I've ever shown this thing to and flown it around, and they flip. I just flew this in the newsroom. And we had this staid old news writer who was, uh, you know, sardonic, cynical. He's the kind of guy who says, I've seen presidents come, I've seen them go. All politicians are phonies. <laughs> well, that's a newsman talking. So he's sitting in there cackling over his typewriter, drinking bourbon and yelling. And uh, you know how news guys are, smoking cigars and all that. He's sitting there, ah, we're phonies, I'm damn phonies. He's typing away. So I suddenly got up, snuck up behind him, and I flew my bird, and just like this. See, I came in. I'll, I'll show you the little, the little, the little uh, kind of a dramatic scene there. See, he's sitting over his typewriter thing. He's going, "I'm ponies, I'm ponies, oh, And I sneak up behind him. See, he's working away. And of course, when the newsman is being angry, and and uh, and you know how they get uh, when they when they he's really irascible is the word. He's sitting there in cigar smoke swirling around his head, and you can smell the bourbon. And I sneak up behind him, and I go, Surprise, Westbrook! It flies right past him, see? All the newsmen are named Westbrook, man, Voorhees. So it flew past him. He What's that? I said, It's a bird. He said, My God, it's flying! I said, Sure is, Westbrook. Good! It's a flying! Hey, quick! He jumps up, and he starts swinging papers at it. See, he thought he was finally at long last. The bourbon had gotten to the inner cortex of the brain. <laughs> oh yeah, it's the first time I've seen a newsman laugh in a long time. So if you'd like one of these birds, I'm doing two spots together right here, wait, all in one thing. You send your check right now. You get it in the mail real quick, and uh, they'll do the best they can to get it to you by Christmas, and it's really worth it. Believe me, it's fun, and it's guaranteed to fly. They're three ninety-eight per each. Send a check or money order to the following address. Make it out to this address. Don't make it out to me. Send it to Flying Birds, Department S. S, as in never give a an even break. Flying Birds, Department S. And that's Post Office Box 1909. I repeat, Post Office Box 1909, Grand Central Station, New York, New York, three ninety-eight per bird. And when you get your bird, then, friends, 
I'll tell you, your life will be complete for the first time. Something in your life will be not earthbound. You just wind this little bippy up like this. It comes with a it comes with a, a spare rubber band in case you butt. Hear that? Listen to that. Oh, you little thing. There it goes. Okay, that takes care of birds. Do you have those bugles in there, George? Hit them, hit them. Let's hear it, Herbert. Bugles coming up. Bugles. That's exciting. What's that? Oh no, 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 no. I meant General Tire. Bugles. <laughs> That's the bugles, folks. See bugles. Yeah, there's a little uh, quality here for the general tire people these days. A little Gregorian chant. Does the thought of winter driving give you the chills? No, sir. No need with general winter tires. Yes, sir. They have a big general winter cleat black wool snow tires now. Whole big sale. Two for only thirty-eight dollars. Size six fifty by thirteen. A pair of them. Federal excise tax is one seventy-six. This great general tire has four full pleas of nylon nylon cord and a deep cleat four rib tread that digs and grips. Drive in where you see the big red general tire G sign located near you. In Mount Vernon, see Ed Wasileski. Ed Wasileski at General Tire, twenty-two East Second Street. Speaking of that, this is W.O.R. New York. And uh, we're doing pretty good here. we got the birds. Yeah, it's all... We have a Christmas spot here. Uh, Box 710 Times Square Station, New York, 10036. If you want to help out in the W.O.R. Children's Christmas Fund, it's a good charity. And, you know, they buy all kinds of stuff for the kids that are in hospitals at this time of the year. You know, birds and all that stuff. So, uh... Come on, I like... Uh, I, I can't imagine getting a better Christmas gift than a bird plastic bird that flies around the house. Listen, that's better than one of those idiotic ties that most guys get for Christmas, you know. Nothing duller than opening. Oh, always what I wanted. Gee, a pair of underwear. Oh. Oh, boy. Yeah, well, that's the trouble, you know. Hey, you know, speaking of uh, trouble, friends, there's a lot of trouble around. I remember one time, uh, did anybody, any of you ever read a short story once? that had to do with uh, uh, a guy. Now, I don't know who wrote it or anything. I just remember when I was a kid, I read this story. We're, we're very definitely influenced by stuff we read. There's no question about it, especially when we're kids and we read a story and you never forget it. Um, you, just, you just never do. And uh, I think it's, you know, it rots your brain sometimes. But when I was a kid, I read this short story, and it was about plants that this guy was down in the basement of his house. See, he, he, uh, he uh, was an experimenter. And he... he <laughs> all right, listen, Herb, now you're interested in radio. He was an experimenter, see. And he, he designed a radio receiver that worked on... on uh, he was experimenting with listening to stuff at, on uh, very high frequencies. And uh, he... He was playing around with this, and all of a sudden he began to hear, because he was he was experimenting with extremely high frequencies on the radio, he began to hear curious background noise in this radio. He could hear, he could hear stuff going on. And he couldn't figure out what it was, so then he, 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 uh, d- he decided to put the antenna outside. See, so he put the antenna outside, maybe you get a clearer, better signal. And sure enough, he hears thousands of voices talking. And he hears screams, and he heard, he heard all kinds of weird stuff going on. And he suddenly, with a, with a great shock, realized that he was listening to plants. 
he could hear plants on this radio. And somebody was outside mowing the lawn, and he heard all these screamings, yellings, and <laughs> this lawnmower was going, <laughs> and you could hear these plants, millions of plants, going, ah, oh, help, help, oh, the women saved the women and killed the first rock, you know. And, and, uh, and all the, the, uh, the grass was flipping because he was cutting the grass. Well, now, do you remember that story? Yeah, you remember it, too. I don't remember who wrote it or anything. I just remember the name of the, you know, the, the story. That's all. Because I, I read it, and it, uh, it rocked me. Now, when you're a kid, you don't remember the name of the guy that wrote it, uh, anything like that. You just, you just remember the story, see? So I, I'm sitting there the other day in, uh, are you sure? Well, she says, Royal Dahl. I'm not so sure. Maybe you're right. I don't know. Could be. But uh, anyway, the, the story was a wild story, and this guy was listening, and then he began to get really concerned, see, because he could hear the trees, everything was... To, all these things communicated on a, on a totally different wavelength than, uh, you know, than normal broadcasting or even normal ears. You couldn't hear it unless, uh, unless you were tuned in. <laughs> and he was tuned in. He had the only, only kind of receiver that could hear this. Now, you laugh at a thing like that. You know, I, I, as a kid, I thought, oh, that's, you know, that's one of those great uh, uh, fantasy fiction ideas, and so on. I love to go at that. But do you want to hear something that's just been released? Now, can I, can I, can I, I hold up, I hold this up now. I'm putting this into evidence here, okay, gang? Going into evidence. There's mysterious stuff going on out there. I have a, an article, which was sent to me by one of my spies, that was a reprint from National Wildlife. Now, that's an official magazine. You know, this is not a cockamamie little magazine. National Wildlife. Listen to this one. Do you, it says, you may recall, it's written by Janice and Charles Robbins, roving editors of National Wildlife, startling research, it says. You may recall the name Cleve Baxter. You ever hear the name? I never did. You may recall the name Cleve Baxter. It belongs to the man who attached a lie detector to the leaf of a plant and got the total surprise of his life. Did you hear that, Lee? He attached a lie detector to a plant, and he got a fantastic shock. The plant showed reactions similar to those of a human being. In subsequent experiments, Baxter discovered that plants are hooked into some kind of telepathic communication system and that they're highly sensitized to people, to the destruction of animal life, and the threats to their own well-being. National Wildlife published the findings back in such and such a date in 1969, and the article attracted worldwide attention. Secretaries and housewives began talking to their plants and treating them with tender, loving care. Have you ever talked to a plant? Of course, the comedians made the expected jokes, and it says it became household knowledge. That is history now. And to get caught up now on what's been happening in the research, Mr. Baxter, we called on him again. He is to be found in a suite of small rooms crowded with scientific apparatus and plants in an ordinary office building just off Times Square. I'll be damned. He's right around here. He could be in the next office. That could be that nut that's on the third floor down here. I keep seeing going in. Anyway, here he pursues his vocation, which is teaching the technique of the lie detector to policemen or other interested parties, and his avocation, which is research into the secrets of nature. We were ushered into a miniature room containing a metal desk with a polygraph, now that's a lie detector, sunk into its top and several plants of the hotel lobby variety. 
In his shirt sleeves, Mr. Baxter sat at the desk. Uh, he just sat there, see? And uh, talked about his scene. Well, what's been happening? Well, uh, a lot. He's been making speeches on it. And uh, they're supposed to be doing a lot of uh, studying and so forth. Now, uh, what he does, he's a lot of, uh, lot of interesting things. They have been plant memory of a sort was suggested by one of his early, the first experiment uh, is an effort to condition reflexes in plants like they did with dogs. You remember Pavlov's dogs where the dog would ring a bell each time he wanted to eat and finally they got to the point where all they'd have to do is ring the bell without any food and the dog would salivate. You know, he'd get all excited uh, because he remembers the bell, seeing that it forms a conditional reflex. Well, they tried to do that with plants and he's now convinced that they have such a thing. They, plants can remember stuff, see? Plant memory of a sort was suggested in one of his early experiments in which six of his polygraph students participated. One was chosen by lot to destroy a plant. You hear that now? Listen to this. One guy out of six was chosen by lot to destroy a plant. Keeping his identity from Baxter, the G Baxter didn't know which one of the guys was going to do it, the criminal committed his deed secretly with only one other plant as witness. Then Baxter hooked a polygraph to the surviving plant, and the six suspects paraded into the room in turns. Five of them caused no noticeable reaction in the witness plant, but the six, the killer, sent the plant into a total tizzy. <laughs> How do you like that, Herb? The plant flipped. As Baxter is careful to point out, the plant could have been reflecting the guilt feelings of the culprit. Still, there's an even chance that it was remembering him, since the man was not exactly overwhelmed with guilt for killing a plant. <laughs> he didn't worry about it. At any rate, to settle the memory question, he's begun applying Pavlovian methods to plants. He has rigged up some electrified pulley wires which run down the hall and turn into a room where the plant of the experiment is stationed. Six small, identical cups, one holding seeds, another worms, a third insects, are attached to the trolley and circulate at intervals. One of the six is the object to which Baxter wants to condition the plant, and he uses the light, light as the stimulus. He connected a light conductor electrode. Anyway, every time this stuff comes through, he, he shines a light on the plant. And so after a while, he shines the light. The plant flips. You know, oh, he expects worms. Let's <laughs> give me more worms or whatever it is the plants eat. Well, anyway, you know what he, he thinks now? Listen to this. Oh, he's got all kinds of, of stuff. But uh, he now suspects. You ready for this? He now suspects that, uh, that police will be able to use plants as witnesses to murders. Oh, wait, don't laugh. Uh, he says, uh, plants uh, have, have uh, obviously, he says, according to his stuff, uh, <laughs> he says, crabgrass, crabgrass will not listen to anybody. He's tried everything on crabgrass, it just sits there and cackles. He says he's never been able to get crabgrass to, to react. And he says, I request now the police, he says, uh, they had a, there was a, a lady that was killed uh, here recently in a murder, and he was called in, and and there were plants in the office where she was killed, and they know the plant saw it, and he is convinced that if the right person is brought around these plants, the plants will react, 
And so now he, he told the police that what they ought to do is put the plants in protective custody as the sole witnesses of the homicide. <laughs> well, all right now. Now, okay, so I'm listening. Sam, reading this thing. Now, the, gee, the plants are talking. This guy's talking with plants. And and uh, and I, I don't know whether this is a... I, I, I must say, I don't know whether this is a girl thing or not. I don't know. Being male, it's hard for me to know. But male kids, especially, you know, especially, uh, I'd say about anywhere from 10 to 15 male-type boys are fascinated with the idea of un... How can I say? Unheard things in the air. Would you agree with that, Herb? You don't know. Well, what do I mean? Well, like making a radio and picking something up. I've never heard of a girl who built a radio at the age of 10 or 11. Have you? I never did. Now, I'm sure 12,000 girls are going to call up and claim that they did, but I never heard of one. Uh, male type are always interested in this kind of thing. And I got interested in, in um, as a kid, I was about 9 or 10, 11, and there was a kid who lived across the street from us, a guy named Corky Stryker. And uh, Corky Stryker was a lot older. He was like 15. So he was kind of remote from us. He was a very official kid. And and uh, and he built radios. Well, he got us all involved in radio building. And all of us kids started to build radios. Well, I, I really got at it, man. And I, I for about two or three years, all I did was build shortwave receivers of all kinds. And finally, when I was about 15 or 16, I had built some pretty good receivers. I uh, spent every every amount of money I had on it. You know, any cent I got from my paper route went in on these receivers. Until finally, I had built myself a uh, well, it was roughly a, a eight or nine tubes crystal control, by the way, uh, super het receiver with three stages of IF, and it was a really hot receiver and a good receiver. And I put, I put a good antenna up on the house, and I got fascinated with the sounds that you hear at certain hours of the day in between radio signals on the upper high frequency ends of the bands. You you hear And you hear these sounds. And they're, they're mysterious sounds. They're, they're, they're sounds that really, uh, there's a lot of theories about them. And uh, many people don't think they're theories. They think they're fact. And uh, they'll, they'll claim that they come from this thing and that. And, and I, I remember when I first began to get this really hot receiver working, and all the receivers I've had since then, uh, picking up, uh, especially with a good antenna, you can pick up stuff which is, uh, has been called ultimately from outer galaxies, correct? Radiation. So here you, you, you know that you can hear this. You can sit and listen to it in your own house. And so I'm hearing these sounds. They make a kind of a swishing sound a lot of times. Do you, do you agree with that, Herb? A kind of a swishing sound. You hear the swish amid the, amid the tremendous background and strange clicks. You hear. So I got really fascinated with this. I put up a good antenna, and and uh, and I found that uh, they that if I if I turn the antenna, it was a rotary antenna. If I turn the antenna further away from, from all the industrial stuff that was around there, and uh, more or less sent it out to, to the west, which was clear, fairly clear in our area. 
and I could hear this stuff even better. It was coming at uh, kind of a low angle of radiation over the horizon, and so I put up really, really high, high, high impedance, high, high gain amplifier, RF amplifiers ahead of the signal, that is ahead of the receiver, in between the antenna and the receiver, and I put a lot of amplifiers good high-gain audio amplifiers, and I got so that I would sit and listen for, by the hour. Did you ever do this hobby? That strange stuff in between the signals. And then, I, then, then the theories begin to pop out. And the theories, of course, that, that have been advanced about these things, that they, they put on all kinds of uh, techniques to analyze this stuff. And there was one school of thought, which is incidentally still held by particularly British scientists, that this is radiation uh, that has a certain pattern that involves intelligence from another planet, but we're not yet able to decipher it. You've heard that, Herb. That's one theory. And uh, there's another theory that simply says that there is a radiation centers in various parts of the outer solar system that just radiate stuff. <laughs> and, uh, and that's it. It's just uh, like natural radiation, like, uh, like atomic radiation. So there's all kinds of wild theories about this stuff. But boy, I'll tell you, there's nothing more exciting than like uh, you're, you're like 15 and to sit up at 2 and 3 o'clock in the morning and turn up the gain and hear these, these strange sounds that come from nobody quite knows where. Well, as I, I begin to experiment with this stuff, see, and, and one thing leads to the next. And I, I, I'd... Uh, built this uh, regenerative receiver, and I... He calls up, and he says, what frequency are you listening to? I said, well, I'm, I'm uh, down here around 19 meters. He says, yeah? He says, well, listen, he says, I'm down around 19 meters. He says, did you hear that funny whistling going by? I said, what whistling? He said, well, something we just went by on the frequency. He says, I'm, I'm tuned to 19 point." Six seven five. He says, tune in nineteen point. So I tune in that frequency. See, so he started goes again. He said, "Did you hear that?" I said, "No, I didn't hear anything." So well, it just went right past my. Just, I said, "I didn't hear anything." He said, "Well, you sure you tuned in right now? Try it again. Tune in nineteen point three seven five. So I tune in. He said, "Goes. It's. It's. Let's know it. He said, you can hear it." And he holds the phone up. See, you could hear. I didn't hear it. And then it began to dawn on both of us. It was coming from my receiver. That he was picking up my receiver where he was. Like, you know, he was about a block away. He is hearing me. See, that's radiation of my receiver. So I got Bruner on the phone. I says, hey, Bruner, now wait. Now you, you tune me in, see? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go across the band again and hold up the receiver by the loudspeaker so I can hear it, see? So I go, I tune the dial, and you can hear it. You hear, <laughs> whistle goes by, see? And then I says, wait, I'm going to go back. So I says, hey, that's great. I said, now listen, listen, Bruno, I turn up the gain so I can hear it. So I take my hand, and I, I, I drift my hand next to... I drift my head next to the RF coil, see, and just drift it in there. And so that makes it, it changes the capacitance, the, the LC circuit. So I, by, by moving my hand, I could make it go.
<laughs> and Bruni says, hey, that's great. He says, holy smokes, that's terrific. So the, naturally, the next, the next step is to take my Boy Scout key and put my Boy Scout key in series with the, with the power supply, and now I have a full-blown transmitter. Do you agree? So I could, I could send the code now. I go... <laughs> and it was very, very, uh, very shaky because it had bad... Uh, <laughs> it had chirps. It would go... Well, that began a whole series of experiments which uh, almost caused me and Bruner to wind up in jail. I mean, we, we became really involved in this thing. And so we, we discovered that the reason that Bruner's wasn't doing this, wasn't radiating, was because he had shields. <laughs> he had shields on his, uh, on his RF coils. So we took the shields off of Bruner's, and I can hear Bruner now. So the two of us now are sitting back and forth whistling to each other over, over you know, like a space of about two blocks. I would go, and then Bruner would sit there for a second, and then he would tune across my, my receiver. He'd go, well, he stuck a key in there, and so we, we began primitive communication. Very primitive. Now, this, this thing gets to be habit forming. Uh, I must say that, that uh, anybody who's really tried to communicate over a distance with the magic, as they always say, of radio, it begins to get very habit-forming. I can understand why the plants are, you know, are deeply involved with it. So one day we're sitting in school, and we're talking about this. Uh, this is an esoteric pursuit. The girls don't understand this. In fact, none of the other kids understood it either. So me and Bruner are sitting there talking about, you know, what we're going to do. We're going to... When we get home, I'm going to put up a different antenna, and I'm going to make it so they really get high gain, and maybe I can, uh, maybe I can, uh, maybe I can work other guys someplace. And Bruner's planning the same thing. When all of a sudden, this guy next to us, there's a kid who, who I hardly knew. His name was Hugh. Yeah, Huey Middlecoff. So, so Hugh, Hugh is sitting there, and he's listening. He says, "Hey," he says, "Are you guys interested in radio?" Listen, he said, I didn't know you guys were interested. How, when did you get when did you get interested in radio? Well, you know, we've been doing it all the time. And we hardly knew Middlecoff because he came from the other side of town. He was from about like four miles away, see. So Hugh says, Listen, he said, after class, why don't you guys come over to my house? And so uh, we sat around in class and we uh, in those days, you know, certain kids when they get involved in something, they're totally involved. There's no way to be halfway involved. Did you go through that period when you did nothing but draw, draw diagrams? Diagrams, constantly. You just can't stop. When you doodle, in fact, I've even run across that sometimes when I go into a phone booth here in New York. I see another victim has been in there. I see a triode or a, or a pentode. He's been doodling on the, on the wall, and you see a pentode hooked up for an RF amplifier. It even has the resistors and everything in there. So this begins to get you. It's like horse people. I know... A horse person who is a horse cuckoo. And this girl, whenever she does any kind of doodling, draws horses. Nothing but horses. And so, uh, you, you, the, you know, whatever it is that you're hung on, you tend to doodle about it. So I was going through, <laughs> I was going through my diagram stage, drawing diagrams all over, just diagrams. 
And and you've seen radios and uh, and electronic diagrams, any of you? Well, to to me and to to Schwartz at the Bruner at the time, and even to this day for me, reading a diagram is as is as natural. And this may seem surprising to a lot of people, to whom it probably looks like just uh, gibberish, you know, a lot of lines on a paper. But uh, reading a diagram is as natural as, say, reading a book. You agree with that, Herb? Even more so, because it's much clearer. There it is. And and would you would you ever? I'll, I'll bet I'll bet a lot of you would be surprised that that guys can read diagrams. I remember Johnny Anderson would. He was so so deeply involved in experimenting with radio stuff that he would read a diagram. He's sitting there reading a diagram and he's laughing. Yeah, he finds it. <laughs> I'll be I'll be done. You know, I'd say, what what is it? He's looking look at the cat those flowers. Second, what do you think of that? <laughs> oh man. And, and it's funny, you see, because he sees a, a strange circuit or he sees something that, that has this, uh, a curious twist in it, and he finds it as funny as somebody's reading a wild short story. And, and it, it has meaning to him. So anyway, that night, after, after, after messing around with, uh, with two kids talking back and forth on the receivers, like we had been doing, me and Bruner, for at least, uh, oh, at least a month and a half, two months, we go over to Hugh Middlecoff's house. Very cool kid, strange kid. You know, in every in every uh, walk of life, any any time in your life, there's always two or three people who are totally enigmatic. That doesn't mean they're necessarily uh, mysterious or evil. They just be enigmatic. They don't express them. They say nothing. Very quiet. And Hugh Middlecoff was. I had known him for a couple of years in school. Never said a word. Quiet. He would disappear at the end of school at night and never see him till the next day. Never said much in class. Tall, skinny. He was almost an albino. You know that curious light-colored skin? And uh, he had uh, sort of washed-out blonde hair, thick glasses that were tinted, kind of vaguely purple. And he wore these argyle sweaters, kind of rumpled-looking sweaters. And it wasn't until I, I got to know Middlecoff and I realized that his skin was that curious uh, dead fish belly color due to the fact that he spent all of his life in a basement. He was a basement liver. <laughs> you know, there are some kids that spend all their life in the basement making stuff or, make, you know, messing around. Well, that was you. So that night, me and, and Bruner and Schwartz went over to Middlecoff's house. And it was it was a it was a turning point. A turning point. A new god was born. Huey Middlecoff. Huey Middlecoff had down in the basement of his house. He had a workbench. Now he also had a father that bought him stuff. Among other, well, no, it didn't mean that he was an affluent, but his he, he got stuff, <laughs> and and he had a beautiful test setup on the wall. With a big milliammeter, he had a, a, a big volt ohmmeter, and he had a cathode ray oscilloscope. Well, I guess you you know if you don't know what that means, this is this is like a kid having his own airplane or something. And he had a cathode ray oscilloscope. But more than that, he was the first bootlegger I ever met, and he was very secretive about it. Now, what is a bootlegger? Well, for those of you who don't know what a bootlegger is, that's a curious kind of illegality, 
a guy that operates an illegal radio station. He does not have a license, and he is illegal. And so here was Huey Middlecoff, and he was not only a, a, an illegal operator, not only a bootleg ham, but he had a really operating ham station. He was on 40 meters, and he was on CW. He also worked 75-meter phone, and here it was, a rack and panel setup. He must have had 250 watts operating bootleg. Well, it was a stunning discovery. Now, it would be just like if, if all of a sudden you discovered this aunt of yours who comes over every Wednesday to play bridge is actually secretly in league with the mafia. And she is, <laughs> she is, is, running, she is running heroin into Montreal late at night using a twin-engine converted World War II bomber. Well, you would be a little astounded. And here's Hugh, working his rank. We spent, maybe spent about 20 minutes in the basement while Hugh is showing us his equipment. A bootlegger. He had cards printed with his fake call. Now that's really doing it. He had cards printed. He had cards all over his wall from guys that he had talked to in places like like India and Japan and China and England. And he spent about 20 minutes with us, this mysterious, tall, skinny kid who never talked much to us, showed us his equipment. And now it's time to leave. It's time to go home. And me and Schwartz and Broner, we go out into the darkness kind of stunned. I remember walking along the street Bruner says, gee, boy, you want to try that? It was so beyond our scope. The kid was not only a bootlegger, but he was also a very well-qualified technician. He built this equipment. Schwartz says, gee, I, I, boy, do you realize he could get two years in jail for that? Bruner says, yeah, two years in jail. Somehow, the illicit that this kid went on and on, and later, by the way, did get <laughs> roughly two years in jail for that. But from that minute on, I, I became deeply immersed mentally in the curious night sounds that are beyond the realm and the can of the human ear. You know, if you just sit there right now and open your mouth, that the fillings in your teeth are picking up stuff, which you can't conceivably understand, that's a fact. It's true. And that all around you, there are millions and millions of tiny, mysterious waveforms that can be picked up by the right equipment. And there are some theories that the right equipment has not yet been designed to pick up some of the most mysterious of all the sounds. The crying grass, the screaming geranium. Yes. The sound of Jupiter calling out to Saturn. Yeah.